0: Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives, sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host. Vicki St. Clair.
1: Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Coming in the second half of today's show, the detox professor, otherwise known as nutritionist and detox expert, David Getoff. His new book is called Abundant Health in a Toxic World. We'll talk about pollutants in the body, his views on the keto diet, why we should sweat, and, ladies, why we should not wear Bras. I told him I was going to have to challenge him on that one. First, we're joined by award-winning author Julie Berry with her latest book, Lovely War. It's a heady mix of mythology, historical fiction, romance. It spans two wars and two worlds. Julie Berry is the author of the 2017 Prince Honor and Los Angeles Times Book Prize Award. She is uh, also uh, she's won many awards, actually. Um, her book, all uh, her last book, was all the truth that's in me, and uh, that was, I believe, uh, shortlisted for the Edgar and the Carnegie. And uh, today she's joining us with her latest book. It's called Lovely War. Julie Berry, welcome.
2: Thank you, Vicky, for having me.
1: Uh, Very welcome. I'm pleased to have you here. And um, so you won so many awards. And just as I was reading those out, I accidentally moved my mouse and (laughs) lost all of the awards there. But um, it's quite exciting when somebody uh, starts uh, her career in writing later in life uh, because you were raising your children. It wasn't until your fourth son was born, I read, that you actually started writing and you've done exceptionally well with this. So that must be very gratifying.
2: It's been wonderful. I I sometimes joke that writing was my second chance saloon, you know, after uh, abandoning all of the little girlhood dreams of being a gymnast or being a dancer or being a princess. You know, you you settle into real life, but writing remains available to you even after certain other ships have sailed. So I feel very lucky.
1: Mm -hmm. And you actually, you did go back to school uh, to learn, right? You'd done communications in college, I understand, and then... You went back to do an MFA in writing?
2: I did. I felt like the structure of the program would be really helpful to me. I I was very busy. I had a job. I was raising kids. And I knew that um, if it was entirely dependent on personal willpower and organization, that I would probably fail. But if I had some accountability built in, then that would help me. And, and it certainly did.
1: That's an interesting um, perspective because, you know, people have different points of view on MFAs in creative writing. Um, All I can say is, uh, you know, because it is expensive and and people question that a lot, but um, all I can say is we've had a lot of really great writers come through this show who've who've done an MFA in creative writing. So I I guess that uh, speaks for itself somewhat.
2: It's a hard decision for sure, but I I really wanted to... um Move as quickly as possible through my apprenticeship, if that makes sense. And I think because I was spending so much on the MFA program, I was determined to really, you know, squeeze every drop of juice out of it and and try to get myself to a publishable place as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I think it really helped me.
1: Right. So you're known for writing children's books and writing young adult fiction. Why did you choose those genres? You know, in my mind, it
2: was never even really a choice. It's always been. the place where my imagination goes. I'm so enamored of the children's books that I grew up on, and part of me has just never really left that place. It was never even a question. I I always wanted to write for young people, and I I still love doing so. I feel like young people are still very open. They're still very much willing to listen to perspectives on the world, and they don't feel like um, they have all the answers yet, and I find that really... uh, delightful to have mm-hmm. an audience that's receptive and uh, and
1: that has their whole future ahead of them
2: and is still you know wondering what it might be so
1: right right my favorite people well I have to say uh, young adult fiction is definitely not what it was when I was <laughs> when I was growing up it used to be about boarding schools and horses and summer holiday adventures um, and it's really quite amazing the breadth and depth of some of the young adult fiction that is out on the shelves uh, these days, and you've certainly, you've written some very different stories in that genre.
2: I really enjoy variety, and you're right, that young adult literature, I, I don't even really remember being aware of much teen fiction as a kid growing up. You kind of went straight from the children's classics to, right. you know, Victorian novels, and then you were off and running. So I I feel like it's a wonderful thing for young people and, and obviously for, for writers as well that we have this really fertile market right now.
1: Yeah. Well let's talk a little bit about the book Lovely War. It's a beautiful cover. Um it's really nicely put together and I oh, know. Oh, I agree. I, I feel know so shouldn't, lucky. Shouldn't buy a book for its cover, but <laughs> I have <laughs> I have been known to do that. And it is it certainly is beautiful. Um so the New York Times, let's say what see what they say. They say it's it, uh, Lovely War reads like a divine mix of Kate Atkinson and Neil Gaiman. The Washington Post writes, Pick an adjective, sweeping, sprawling, epic, Olympian, and yet none quite conveys the emotional width and depth of Julie Berry's brilliant new novel, Lovely War. They go on to say a significant part of the action revolves around four young people and their journey with love and loss in World War I, but the overarching story is set during World War II and features a romantic triangle starring three Greek gods. And then they say, if this all sounds a little bit of an audacious mishmash, fear not, because Julie Berry is a master at weaving disparate elements to craft a truly original story populated with characters who will grab your heart. So, um, great accolades coming in on this. Would you describe the book to us in your own words?
2: Sure. The Lovely War is two love stories set chiefly during World War One, as told to us by Aphrodite, the goddess of love, with some help from Apollo, the god of music, Ares, the god of war, and Hades, the lord of the underworld. So it, the setup is, is unusual. Um, it begins with the the famous tryst rendezvous between Aphrodite and Ares, her lover, and they are captured by Hephaestus. Who is Aphrodite's jealous husband and also her brother, and they're captured in a golden net that he has woven for them. And whereas in the Odyssey, Hephaestus would have taken the the cheaters to Mount Olympus to shame them, instead in this hotel room, Aphrodite is basically put on trial by her husband and and charged with infidelity and uh, to plead her defense and to argue why love is still relevant in a war torn world because this. This action actually takes place in the height of World War II, 1942, in a Manhattan hotel. So to to prove why love is still relevant in in a modern world of industrial warfare, she tells these two stories, what she calls her finest work, how she brought two pairs of lovers together during World War I. And in a way, she's answering the question of what it is that love and war have to do with one another and why they are so perennially drawn together, why in a time of war, our passions are heightened and our romances are deepened and we, we don't waste time we get right to the point
1: right right um, it's such an interesting tale and what why did you choose to use Aphrodite to tell the story I, I read that you struggled with the the first chapter and kept rewriting that and then all of a sudden uh, it came together for you
2: that's right. I knew that I wanted to tell a love story set during World War one and I struggled to find my way in to find the right characters. And I, I knew that I wanted to talk about a soldier and a young woman who volunteered in the war effort. So I had some broad ideas, but I, I kept struggling because uh, a novel is by its nature an intimate look at a couple of lives right up close and a love story all the more so. It's a very close, close experience of occupying the, the heart and the, even the body of the characters that we're talking about as they fall in love. But the war itself was such a huge, vast, global catastrophe ranging across the globe and just destroying so many millions of lives it, it's hard to even take in. And so I felt that to tell a sort of traditional boy meets girl during World War I story would be a kind of historical travesty, a sort of act of malpractice. And I tried to think how I could both get close and intimate with my young lovers, but also pan out and see the war in a broader perspective and, and in a, um, from, at a remove of time mm-hmm. also, so we could look back on it and mm-hmm. put it in some historical perspective. And I realized that only a truly omniscient perspective could do that for me. And so I thought, what if love personified were to be my storyteller? I thought that could be interesting. But love personified is not the voice you'd want following a soldier down into the trenches. And so then I thought, well, maybe I also need war personified to tell this story. And then immediately I realized we already have love and war personified, and they're already secret lovers. And so when, when fate hands you a plum like that, you just take it. <laughs> just
1: <laughs> run with it. <laughs> well, so so I'm assuming you read The Odyssey, right? Because your characters are from The Odyssey, and it's such a fascinating story that I remember as a teenager I did classical Uh, greek mythology at school and it was my favorite subject it was absolutely fascinating because they they often do stand from a distance and tell stories and watch the rest of the world going on these greek gods right Mm
2: -hmm. and yet they 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 dally they they they, they get in there with the mortals especially the the more attractive ones (laughs) right
1: right um, so let's. You just mentioned um, young love and the the characters uh, that that um, she follows. Aphrodite follows. So uh, let's let's introduce those. They're Hazel, James, Aubrey, and Colette, a class- classical pian- pianist from London, a would be architect turned soldier, a Harlem on ragtime genius in the U.S. Army, and a Belgian orphan with a gorgeous voice and devastating past. Again really rich characters with interesting backgrounds and interesting stories of their own. So how did you come up with these four characters?
2: Mm. Well, at the time that I was researching this novel, as it happens, I was also reacquainting myself with piano. I had taken lessons as a kid and, you know, dropped them somewhere in high school, never, never given it the attention it deserved. And I had sort of fallen back in love with piano and I had been laboriously teaching myself to play the Maple Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin, which I've always loved, ragtime piano. So I'm researching World War I, I'm playing ragtime piano, and at that time, for work reasons, my husband and I had to live apart for an extended period. And so I was missing him keenly and sort of pouring my woes into my piano playing. <laughs> right. And so here I am, you know, reading about the war, playing ragtime piano, and missing the one I love. And I'm thinking, is there any way that this can all come together into a story? And as I hit upon the history of the Harlem Hellfighters and their world-class ragtime band, along with other all-African-American uh, regiments and their military bands that really lit a fire of jazz fever throughout France and throughout Europe, then that's when it hit me that, you know, this was this was the missing piece that I was looking for, and it all sort of came together there. Um, so that's kind of how it all began, but... Um, you know, Hazel's character, uh, in some ways, I could relate to as a, you know, sort of once upon a time, very shy young woman who played piano and didn't really know how to talk to boys. Uh, James, as a soldier, began as sort of every man, every every Tommy in the British Army, but um, quickly, you know, took on his own personhood. Um, Aubrey, to me, really leapt off the page, his his personality and his um, vibrant creative energy and his humor were just, um, you know, one of those gifts that shows up when right. the writer sits down and tries to do their work. And Colette really allowed me to look more closely at the devastating personal impact of the war on on civilians, on communities and families. It's not just the story of what happens to soldiers and to the people waiting at home for those dreaded telegrams. It's actually the stories of communities that are invaded and, and torn apart. So they allowed me to look at different aspects of the war. I mean, I could have could have added eight more characters, right, and looked sure. at the war in, in Turkey or, you know, <laughs> all over the place. But those were the four that really allowed me to, to show those aspects of the war that were important to me.
1: Well, when we come back, uh, we have to take a quick break right now, Julie. When we come back, I want to ask you about some of the research that went into this because you actually include some uh, real names in the book. Um, Most of it's fiction, but there are some real names in there. And we'll talk about that when we come back. We are talking with Julie Berry today. Her new book is called Lovely War. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. Parkinson's
3: disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, Visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800 457 6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of. Only you
1: can prevent wildfires.
3: Turns out there's much more to say.
0: Nearly 90%
3: of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless, dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong we did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by
0: the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning poet, writer, and author of Rough Beauty, 40 Seasons About Living. Karen Avaman's memoir shares the joy of deep winter silence, living alone at 8,500 feet, and psychologist and former Buddhist monk Donald Altman returns to Explore how love, kindness, and compassion helps overcome fear and negativity. Tune in Mondays at New Pacific and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at ConversationsLive.net.
4: Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at ConversationsLive.net.
0: Working hard to put a smile on your face. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest is Julie Berry. Uh, the Wall Street Journal says about her new book, Lovely War. Leavened by wit and informed by history, Lovely War is a romantic and inventive story from its dramatic start to its laughter and tear-spangled ending. And so, Julie, I wanted to talk in this section about how you integrated some real characters into the, the fictional story, and why you chose to do that.
2: Sure. Probably the most important real character, real figure in, um, from history that appears in the book is James Reese Europe, and he is the band leader, he's a, a lieutenant in the Harlem Hellfighters Regiment, a machine gunner, but most notably a composer and band leader and real musical visionary and pioneer. If he hadn't been killed in a, a tragic uh fight, an accident, really, he was murdered um, by a a shell-shocked musician shortly after the war. If he hadn't died so soon, I'm certain that his would be a household name. And it's been great to see a really renewed interest in his life recently with the centennial of the war and a a look back at that musical history. He was a pioneer in putting uh, African-American music on the cultural map, especially in New York City in the early 20th century. And so, uh, To tell the story of this regiment and of their experiences in France, I I couldn't not talk about him, and it was very natural to make him an important figure in the life of Aubrey Edwards, a fictional soldier from that regiment and piano player. And I actually included the names of uh, almost all the other musicians mentioned in the book are the actual performers in that band, and um, also uh, there's another leader in that Regiment, uh, a white soldier, um, uh, Lieutenant Fish. So he was an important figure. Went on to, you know, serve in, in the House of Representatives. Um, but uh, Europe's legacy and impact are so significant, and it, the fact that we don't talk about him enough is, is just, you know, just a crime. Um, because he really brought ragtime music into the forefront and, and paved the way for what would be. You know, the jazz age in the United States and, and in France. And so, uh, both as a composer and as a, an advocate for black music, um, he, he leaves a, a huge shadow. Wow.
1: I, I have to confess, till I read your book, I had not heard of him. And he, he was the guy who supposedly coined the term gig for musicians, right? When they playing an That's right. It an was, event. That was his. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, let's talk uh, a little about. Um, the black servicemen, um, I, you know, you have a great section at the back of the book that talks about, um, separates some of the fact from the fiction and you talk more about the history and I knew very little about the role of um, black servicemen in the First World War and they almost, it seemed, were treated like slaves um, and yet... Funnily enough, it gave them a sense of pride and, and accomplishment when they were actually serving in in the war. So, talk to us a little bit about what you learned, because I know you did extensive research on this.
2: Sure. Well, I'm indebted to the work of you know marvelous scholars and their their efforts here. Um, lots of great books, which are mentioned in the bibliography of the book, which I definitely recommend. Um, this this time period uh, was referred to by black activists as the long, dark night. This was when segregation in America was in full strength mm-hmm. and when lynching was at a dramatic high. And the idea of black servicemen was alarming to white supremacist America because soldiers carry weapons and they carry themselves with pride and they expect to be treated with the respect due to a serviceman who has served his country. And this was unthinkable to white supremacist America. And we have to remember that that was not just the narrow fringe, that was the prevailing sentiment in this country, north and south of the Mason-Dixon line. We had a white supremacist president in the White House, Woodrow Wilson, who as uh, president of Princeton University had blocked all black applicants and who had filled his cabinet with Southern segregationists. So we had this climate where black Americans were... um, Systematically denied legal, political, financial, educational rights and opportunities, and where they could be treated with violence with almost impunity, and and were really defenseless uh, in, the, um, in the in the legal system and in um, the police system. So in this climate, a lot of African Americans flocked to the war effort. They saw the war as a chance to demonstrate their capacity to to break the myth of the ignorant and lazy black American, and they, they you know they enlisted in large numbers, trusting that where, whereas perhaps state and local governments had failed them, perhaps the federal government would be on their side. Mm-hmm. But they met with uh, violent opposition from white supremacist, white supremacist elements in the army, and particular at the southern training bases where they trained before uh, traveling to France. One of the great tragedies I found was that one of the groups most targeted for lynching and violence in the years following the war were returning black veterans, especially those daring to appear in uniform, Mm -hmm. because it was just intolerable uh, in the South that, that they should presume to wear the uniform of the United States.
1: And I guess they, they came back with a confidence, you say, that infuriated white supremacists and the, the lynching spiked in 1919 because of that. A very sad, very sad uh, part of the history there. Sure. Yeah. And so, I think that's why we don't talk about
2: it enough. You know, it's embarrassing.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. And I know the story in part was inspired by your grandmothers who grew up in uh, World War One, and you, you didn't get a chance to talk to them about it and you wondered uh, this what-if question that writers always put out in their heads. You know, what if, what would like have been life to be young and to be in love? So tell us how that formulated uh, at the beginning of the concept of your story.
2: Sure. Both of my grandmothers were falling in love with Both of my grandfathers during the war. In fact, uh, quite by accident, I stumbled upon my grandfather, my paternal grandfather's draft card for the war, and it was just a couple months before his marriage to my grandmother. So I was quite enchanted by this. And of course, when I was a little girl, my both my grandfathers had already died, and both my grandmothers were very, very old women. And so, uh, in my child's mind, I never thought of them as anything other than old, but now that I'm an adult and they're long gone, I really wished that I'd had more opportunity to learn their stories and understand their early lives better. So this was a fictional way for me to explore the time period, not their individual circumstances.
1: Right, they, right.
2: They live in, but it was a, a way to kind of ask myself what it would, it would be like to be young and in love at that time.
1: right. Well, it's certainly a fascinating story. It's uh, described as sweeping, multi-layered romance, and uh, you can't get away from the fact that you have incredible imagination to 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 think this, but even more imagination to put it all together and make it cohesive. So, <laughs> so um, a final a final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today? What do you want them to know about the book that we haven't shared? Oh well.
2: Lovely War is so dear to me, and it, it sounds cliché, especially with Aphrodite as this narrator. But it, it truly was a, a labor of love for me, and it was such a privilege to spend time getting to know the stories, the real stories of real servicemen and, and volunteer women who served, who fought, who treated the wounded, and it, you know, it was it was a sacred and life changing experience to learn both about those who survived and came home to tell the tale, but also about the millions who did not and who were mourned and, and grieved by their heartbroken families. So it, it really was sacred ground to spend time learning about this world, and I I hope that the book offers that glimpse of the real lives of our, our real great-uncles and grandfathers and grandmothers and how this war shaped them.
1: Yeah. I have a, a drawer full of uh, memorabilia from my family that I've collected over the years. And I have in there love letters that my grandfather sent to my grandmother in the First World War. Uh, they're so faded, I can barely read them. And it made me think I should try and see if I can get them restored a little because it's, I, it's so precious. But uh, yeah, it's really cool. Julie Berry, thank you so much for being with us. Thank
2: you, Vicki, for having
1: me. And I know listeners can find out much more about Julie and her work at julieberrybooks.com, julieberrybooks.com. And again, this is a uh, young adult uh, fiction, lovely war, but uh, a lot of reviews I said that, and I agree that um, mothers will be stealing this off their daughter's <laughs> night stamps. So enjoy. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
0: Let's see if I. I guess that. uh, This just isn't working.
4: Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it, another. So, what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicky partners with people just like you At the exact level you need whether you need a little encouragement editorial guidance or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services if you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you stop procrastinating let's get your story down on paper contact vicky today email vicky at vickysaintclaire.com or call 1-800-495 Seventy-six, seventeen. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClaire.com. Oh, yeah, that could
0: work.
3: Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that after 75 years, no! Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when it's dry or windy. Be careful burning yard waste, because wildfires can even start in your neck of the woods. Go to smokybear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
1: This is Martha Narwock. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, June 16th, it's a Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me and a chance for us to catch up. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I can help you understand your animal friends and solve any problems you've got going on. So plan to give me a call with your questions or about any animal-related topic you'd like to discuss. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150.
0: Real people, real life, real radio. Alternative Talk, 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And coming up next, David Getoff. He's uh, been a clinical nutritionist and traditional naturopath for more than 25 years. He is a nationally board-certified clinical nutritionist. I should say that because he has the creds to go with this. Uh, He's an elected member of both the American College of Nutrition and the International College of Integrative Medicine. And most importantly, he's an independent thinker. He's known as an independent thinker. He's a voracious learner. Uh, He attends conferences and scientific uh, workshops around the U.S. And he gives many, many workshops himself. And uh, his new book is called Abundant Health in a Toxic World. And uh, it covers a great deal of information. I talked with him a couple of weeks back, and uh, we're going to bring that conversation to you in just a moment. Um, He has a very heavy section in here on uh, detox and pollutants in the body, and I think we start off with that in our conversation. Uh, Here's that conversation now. David, get off. So David, you've been practicing nutrition for a long, long time, for over 25 years. What was it that drew you to this profession?
3: I actually took a class when I was maybe 20 years old in New York. Uh, I took it for non-credit, but it was a college course called Nutrition Against Disease, a medical doctor. And it was just fascinating. It was a 16-week college course where he was teaching us, or, or not really teaching us, showing us all the ways in which he helped patient get, uh, patients get well with the use of diet changes, nutritional supplements, uh, hair analyses, uh, testing for different types of uh, food and chemical sensitivities, and having them avoid the things their body didn't like. And that he was getting results with math of numbers of different conditions. And I went, this is interesting. And so I started looking into it and reading books and reading uh, journal articles and subscribing to medical newsletters, never thinking of doing it as an occupation. I've probably had seven or eight different occupations over my lifetime. I've never really counted them. And it wasn't until about 25 or 30 years ago when I had already, for free, just as a lark, Answered people's questions that knew I had this kind of information, and they took my advice and had a whole bunch of different people get rid of a whole bunch of different health conditions. That I said, you know, this is fun. This is what I want to do. And I started looking into what I needed to do to get their credentials so these people would think I'm not just somebody in the public.
1: Right. And I want to begin with detox, because you say one of the most important keys to good health is is something that most people overlook, and that's detoxification. A lot of people say if you eat a balanced nutritional diet, detox is unnecessary because it happens organically. Um, With all of the chemicals in the air and the pollution we breathe in every day, you say this is not necessarily true. So would you give us your high-level view of detox and why it's so important to our health?
3: Well, I, I mean, I would uh, direct people to go into you know Google or DuckDuckGo or Yahoo or whatever search engine they use and put in two things to bring these two articles up so they can read them themselves. One article was entitled Body Burden, the Pollution in People. It was done in 2003 by the Environmental Working Group. And the second was called Body Burden, the Pollution in Newborns, which I think was in 2005. This gigantic, marvelous group, EWG.org, did a multi, multi-million dollar study where they took some fat samples from a whole bunch of different people for the first one, and they took umbilical cords from newborns for the second one, and they had them analyzed for a couple of hundred different poisons. We're talking about herbicides, pesticides, uh, solvents, fluoride, chlorine, and I could just keep on going. And they couldn't find a single newborn that didn't already have about 50 of these in them before they were even born wow. and for mom, they couldn't find a single adult in the other one that didn't have between 60 and 80 of these in them because we weren't designed, no matter, I don't get into that issue, I don't know how the heck we got here, <laughs> but we weren't designed to be able to detoxify all of these substances that didn't exist anywhere on our planet a couple hundred years ago. And so they build up and are some of the main reasons for every neurological disease every autoimmune disease, every cancer, uh, all sorts of different memory issues and a whole bunch of other different things, unless we start to work to try and help the body to eliminate this stuff.
1: Right. You have a, a great table in the book. Uh, it says hundreds of consumer products contain the chemicals found in nine participants of a study that you mentioned. Things like battery cleaners. um, Belt dressings, bleach, uh, flooring, fireproofing, explosives—in our bodies, it's—it's it's unbelievable. But I, but I know it's right. Um, how do we begin to detoxify to get rid of this? And is it actually, in fact, possible to detoxify yourself of everything?
3: Well, I don't, I'm not ever going to say that we could completely clean every single poison out of your body, but we can certainly massively reduce them very slowly over a period of many months to a couple of years. And doing so, uh, and yes, absolutely we can do so. I've reversed lots and lots and lots of different conditions in lots of people. Doing so can both help reverse different conditions in different people, as well as greatly, massively reduce the risks for future diseases because if the amount of of you know a certain chemical or a certain group of chemicals has to get to a specific place before somebody ends up getting alzheimer's als you know uh multiple sclerosis any of these different things and if we can reduce it enough that it's not going to get that high oh my god uh, we're we're preventing all sorts of different health conditions
1: yeah and i want to look at something else that is is controversial people either are all for it or all against it and that is um, the keto way of eating. We're hearing such a lot of claims around the keto way of eating lately. Um, but there are also some seemingly valid concerns around keto too. So um, I know you, you prefer a more balanced kind of viewpoint, but would you give us your perspective on keto and what's good about it, what's maybe not so good about it?
3: Sure. Well, what, what I have found in general is the only way to validate that some method of eating keto, paleo, you know, high this, high that, low this, low that, the only way to validate that it is a healthy method of eating and anything else somebody does short of what I'm about to say is not going to validate it uh, is multi-generational research because they have found in all of their research on DNA that we can change DNA, we can change our genetic structure based on foods, and it gets worse and worse or better and better, and we need to do the same thing for five generations to be able to prove that, okay, this is the fifth-generation person that ate that way, and their cancer rate is lower than the rest of people, their Alzheimer's rate is lower, their MS rate is lower. So anytime somebody comes up with something, if you could find me a population on our planet, and it doesn't have to be a current one, it could be a past one, where they ate a certain way, and we can pretty much prove it, for hundreds or thousands of years, multiple generations, and they were in great health, then I will say, okay, what they did for the way they lived was great. I do not find any ketogenic populations anywhere on the planet. Now, that does not mean that the ketogenic diet isn't a very helpful diet. I consider it to be a therapeutic diet. It is probably the best diet for helping people with cancer because if you cut out starch, sugar, and alcohol, all of which feed cancer cells, something that the cancer patient should not want to do, and that person instead starts to get all of their energy from fats, which do not feed cancer cells, that's a very good thing. At one of the cancer conferences I was at, every single expert from around the world said, well, of course the best diet is ketogenic diet. And it was so great to hear that from five experts from five countries. It's also great for resistant weight loss where somebody's tried everything, but they're not losing weight. Very often the ketogenic diet will help them lose weight. It's also great for what it was designed for many, many decades ago, uh, which is to bathe the neurological system in so many fats that seizure disorders, different types of epileptic disorders, uh, either get much better or go away. And it's also fantastic for diabetes because the same three issues starches, sugar, and alcohol are what cause it and make it worse. And if we instead have that person get their energy from fats, then the diabetes, in many cases, reverses totally and they don't have it anymore. In other cases, they've massively reduced their drugs. But because I can't find a population anywhere on the planet that we can validate was on a ketogenic diet for many, many generations and is fine, I don't consider it to just be, hey, everybody should be keto. And to go one step further that people really need to listen And understand you are not on the ketogenic diet no matter what you may think and no matter what that book or article that you read and told you if you don't have a blood ketone meter and you're not checking your blood to see that your ketone level is high enough that you're actually up in the range you want to for ketosis otherwise you're just on a high fat diet and it may easily not be high enough fat to put you into ketosis so if you want to be in a range of ketones from let's say one or one and a half or two or three you've got to test that you can't just assume it based on how much fat you're eating
1: right and as i understand it the reason people want to push their body into a state of ketosis is because it burns more fat that way is that correct
3: That is correct. Yeah, if you get the body into ketosis, then it starts burning your body fat that you are trying to get rid of. Uh, And of course, the other reason is just because of getting your energy from something that isn't feeding, for example, a cancer cell or throwing your blood sugar into turmoil with diabetes.
1: Okay. And so let's go back to something you said about um, protein, animal protein, not causing cancer because Again, You know, there's, there are controversial viewpoints out there, and they tell you. Um, I was just watching something the other evening that said, you know, animal fats increase the risk of cancer.
3: And what I do, because I don't like to believe anybody, uh, I like to see the research. Right. Is when somebody says that there's a new study that says this, that, or the other thing, uh, I get online with PubMed and I purchase the study and I read it. And it turns out that. Again, if you take a look at our historical uh, societies, uh, no matter which ones you want to look at from around the world, uh, they all ate, many of them, large amounts of meat, and they often lived to be 60, 70, 80, and 90 years old and almost never got cancer. The original Eskimos, uh, now we call them the Inuit, the original Eskimos, they couldn't find any cancer when the explorers lived up there for many years with them. Nobody had cancer. So how is it that we now have research studies that seem to show that consuming certain types of fats or proteins are causing cancer? And the answer is actually extremely simple. We are not consuming the same types and qualities of meats and fats that they were because they were getting everything in the wild. They were, you know, catching it. And So every single animal, every single bird, every single fish was actually eating exactly what Mother Nature, God, or what anybody wants to believe in says they should eat. Now we have these big farms and big ranches, and we decide what the cattle are going to eat. So instead of them eating grass and weeds, which is their natural form, which completely changes the fatty acid content and turns the meat into a healthy anti-inflammatory meat, we instead feed them corn not grass, soybeans, very often genetically modified corn or soybeans. And so they end up having a completely different ratio of everything, and we are turning them into a food that is unhealthy. And it's, it's, it's actually peculiar that people don't look at that extra step. If you ask a 1,000 people, do you think that eating more healthily, and you don't even go over what that might mean, that eating more healthily would probably improve your health, they will all say, yeah, it probably would. But they don't understand that what they're eating, it also needed to be eating more healthily or you're eating something that isn't healthy. Right. That's not the way to improve your health.
1: Right. Right. Um, So while you're talking of cattle, um, you say in the book, it's if you have to make a choice between grass fed and organic, go for grass fed. To support that, you know, theory of they'll be more healthy if they've eaten grass than because even if they're even if they're organic, they can sometimes be fed the kinds of foods we don't want them to be fed.
3: Well, actually, not not sometimes, not not sometimes. Every time, time? anybody sell in, in, in any store, if the beef says organic, I guarantee you, it was fed organic corn and soybeans because it is a selling point for it to be grass fed. It costs a lot more. It's a totally different type of ranch, and so they will never leave that off. So if it's grass-fed, it will say grass-fed. Therefore, if it says organic and does not say grass-fed, then it was fed food that that animal would never have eaten in the wild, but it happens to be organic.
1: Okay. All right, let's, can we talk quickly about cholesterol because um, it's not necessarily quite the demon we've been led to believe. There have been quite a few reports about this lately. There's been a lot of discussion around it the last couple of years. Um, and you uh, talk about this in the book. You say supporting your liver, increasing good fats um, can typically lower cholesterol.
3: Well, That's correct. Um, The the, the foods that when people eat them uh, increase the amount of cholesterol in their bodies are foods that do not contain any cholesterol. This has been proven in dozens of research studies. So when the doctor says, oh my goodness, your cholesterol is too high, you need to cut out egg yolks, you need to cut out beef, you need to cut out all these things because their cholesterol is going to raise your cholesterol. We know that's not true. The research shows that's not true. The things that raise cholesterol are, same three again, starches, sugars, and alcohol, because they are inflammatory foods and cholesterol is an anti-inflammatory protective agent that the body manufactures to help protect us from the effects of these bad foods. And what's fascinating is if a really important report comes out that seems to show or that that conclusively shows that something that they don't want us to know is actually true, it gets suppressed. So the example that I, I now give in my classes is the 2015 United States Department of Agriculture Scientific Report Guidelines Advisory Committee. And since it's so short, I'm going to read it to you. It says, "Cholesterol. Previously, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommended that cholesterol intake be limited to no more than 300 milligrams per day. The 2015 Dietary Guidelines will not bring forward this recommendation because available evidence shows no appreciable relationship between the consumption of dietary cholesterol and the serum cholesterol in your body. This is consistent with the conclusions of the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. So they released this to the public in 2015, and because of how strong the pharmaceutical groups are that are making billions of dollars selling statin drugs regulating cholesterol, I don't know anybody that ever heard that. When I lecture and put this slide up on the wall to a room full of doctors, every single one comes up to me afterwards and go, "I, I never saw that." And this was released to the public by the United States Department of Power and Agriculture.
1: One thing I do want to talk about, because I know we're running short on time here, um, you have a great, a great section in the book called "What if the information." we've been told is wrong. And you have a segment called Breast, Bras, and Sweating. You, sh- you say, we should sweat, we should not wear bras, and we're gonna have to speak on that one. And <laughs> we should avoid chemicals to help minimize the risk of recurring breast cancer. So why should we sweat, and why should we limit our time wearing bras?
3: Well, sweating is one of our main methods of detoxifying the body. And that's very well known in the, uh, in the medical community. That's very well known in the people that have done research on sweating where they've taken individuals and they've put them in a sauna, for example, collected their sweat and analyzed it and found hundreds of different chemicals in the sweat, which is fantastic because that means that when we sweat, we are actually helping pull poisons out of the body. So since the largest area of sweat glands in the human body, there are three of them. One is your head and scalp, and that's probably to help make sure that on a hot day it's getting some relief because sweat is also cooling and if it get too hot your brain can't think. Second is your groin area, and that's protecting our reproductive abilities. And the third is your underarms, which is protecting in women, especially the ability to nurse their young. So anytime you do anything, to reduce the amount of sweat your body would normally be producing, you are turning off a detox pathway, which is a very bad idea. As far as bras are concerned, there was a marvelous book. And the, the book was, I mean, they did a fantastic job. They, they did a study, uh, and uh, they found that those people who wore a bra for 12 hours or more a day had a much higher risk of breast cancer. The people looked at this study, and everybody said, oh, that's ridiculous. Your study was too small. So they did a much larger study with thousands of people, and they got the exact same results. And it's not really surprising. Um, the the idea is that every woman, when you take off your bra, if you look in the in the mirror, and I don't care if it's just a sport bra, it doesn't have to be underwire or anything else, when you take off a bra, you can see the marks in your in your in your skin, and they will remain there for a long time. And that's showing how much it was cutting into the area, which is greatly reducing the flow of lymphatics and blood into and out of your breast tissue, which are used to detoxify. And so since the, the, the day is 12, is a 24 hours long, if you go over half of the day doing that, then you are increasing the amount, or actually, let's put it this way, you are decreasing the ability of the breast to detoxify. And the, the book, for people that want to read it, was called, it's still available, Dressed to Kill. And it's a fascinating book, and uh, nobody has ever disproven that in any way, shape, or form.
1: If I had to do one thing today, David, to uh, change my diet and get more energy, um, where, where, where should I start?
3: Uh, change your diet, get more energy, one thing, I would say reduce as much as you're willing the consumption of what I call sabotage foods. I even got a trademark on it from the government, sabotage foods, which are starches, sugars, and alcohols. So somebody needs to look at what starch is. They can actually go to my website and put in the word starch, and I've got a lecture there. Uh, DavidGetOff.com will, will redirect you. Uh, but people need to understand what starch is and what foods contain starch, and the more you can limit that, the more you are also limiting the fact that the body's going to turn it into sugar and the wrong fats.
1: And that can also, and those sabotage foods, and you call them that because they can really sabotage uh, if you're on the keto diet, right?
3: Oh, they will totally sabotage the keto diet. Yeah, they, they basically, they prevent the body from attaining the health it wants. They prevent the pancreas from regulating your blood sugar level to where it should. They really are sabotaging us in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount that we currently eat of them is way, way, way too high. If somebody was doing massive amount, if, if somebody's occupation was so that they were always outside, maybe hunting all day, trying to, to get to the next place they're going to do, farming, whatever, and using so much energy that the starch or sugar that they were eating, even though it would have been less than we eat today, that the body was burning it off, it wouldn't cause these. But we eat way, way more starch, sugar, and alcohol. We exercise or exert, uh, use up calories way, way less. Either one of those would be a problem. Both together are awful.
1: Okay. And so a final word you'd like to leave in our listeners with David.
3: Uh, final word is people need to learn more about what foods are healthy and what foods are not, and not believe automatically what you hear from either your doctor or your dietitian because they have been teaching against what the research says for the last 25 years.
1: Yeah, and I just want to echo, you know, earlier you said, look who's done the study and also look who's paying for the study uh, that keep coming out. Because today I looked, I heard something on the uh, news this morning um, that where a study, they had done a study on tea drinkers and um, two or more cups of hot tea per day of temperatures of 140 degrees or more, they said increase the risk of esophagus cancer by more than 90%. So I jumped online and looked at where that study came from and um, where it was done. It was actually done in Iran, in um, the Golestan province. And um, they, they have a very high incidence of esophageal cancer there. But to me, when I was reading through that study, it, it didn't look as though there were solid conclusions there. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up. Always look at who's done the study.
3: Yeah, research can be very, very misleading. Everybody in the United States knows that cigarette smoking causes cancer. The largest consumption of cigarettes in the world of industrialized nations is Japan, and they have the lowest risk of lung cancer. And that's because they're getting so much better nutrition than we are that it overcomes what's going on.
1: Interesting. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. The book is called Abundant Health in a Toxic World, packed full of uh, interesting facts and, and tips. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You're
3: very welcome.
1: My pleasure. And if you liked uh, what David had to say, there's plenty more to say. And as I said, he's a very independent thinker, very well studied. His website is naturopath4u, the number four, uh, just the number four, naturopath4u.com. Or you can get him through davidgetoff.com. And uh, I also have a book giveaway on uh, my first guest today, Lovely War, Julie Berry's book. I have a book to give away there. So if you call our 800 number and leave your name and telephone number and say you'd like to enter for the drawing, we'll put a drawing together at the end of today, uh, let's say 8 p.m. today. We'll close out that drawing and um, pick a winner. And I will let you know tomorrow if you won the book. Um, The number to call. Yes, that would be important, right? 1-800-495-7617, 1-800-495-7617. And we'll cut that off at 4 o'clock tonight on the live show Monday. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, we will see you next week. If you have questions or comments, feedback, you can reach me at, again, 800-495-7617. You can reach us through ConversationsLive.net. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well. Live strong.
0: Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning poet, writer, and author of Rough Beauty, 40 Seasons About Living. Karen Aviman's memoir shares the joy of deep winter silence, living alone at 8,500 feet, and psychologist and former Buddhist monk Donald Altman returns to explore how love, kindness, and compassion helps overcome fear and negativity. Tune in Mondays at New Pacific and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at ConversationsLive.net. Radio is very competitive, shows soar in popularity and inflame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicky's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today
2: hey hon
4: what you doing with your phone do flowers have best friends i don't know hey look whoa
0: some answers can only be found in nature discover the unsearchable visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you brought to you by the united states forest service and the ad council